Welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church this morning. If you're visiting here today, if you're visiting family and friends, a special welcome to you. I met some folks from Oklahoma City. Grateful that you're here and safe. No tornadoes you'll need to worry about. You can, might have an earthquake or two, but nothing like a tornado, right? So we're glad that you're here. Uh, right after the service, I'll be right here in the front. I'd love to meet any of you who are visiting. I'm fairly new here myself. would love to meet with you and uh, talk with you and shake your hand and all. Uh, if you've come today with a special burden, um, and just, I mean, your heart is just heavy. Uh, let's, let's come pray. That's what the, you see the words over there, the altar, that's what that is for. And if you're over in the venue, you certainly can come over, but there will be a group of people there to pray with you. And there's nothing like casting your care upon the Lord and doing it together, the brother and sister in Christ who loves Jesus, loves you. And uh, together we come into his presence and we can cast every care upon him. So let me invite you to consider that and please, don't go home carrying the same burdens that you are uh, bearing uh, today. I want to appreciate all the dads that are here today. Uh, I have um, been in ministry for quite a, some time and used to do a lot of statistical analysis of attendances. And, and, and for those of us who have been in ministry, generally Father's Day is the least attended day. Dads get up and the moms and the kids are saying, Dad, what do you want to do today? And they say, well, I want to stay home. I want to barbecue. I want to go to the beach or I want to go boating or whatever it is. And those things are, are good activities, but I really admire the men who wake up and, and when the wife and mother ask them, honey, what would you like to do today? First thing he says, well, let's go to church. And then we'll barbecue and then we'll go to the boat or whatever we'll do, but I want to be in church. We had a, a family in our church back in Pennsylvania. They did not attend very often, but on Father's Day, when they would ask him that question, he would say, honey, I, I really would like it if we would all go to church. That's generally what you hear on Mother's Day. And I appreciate you men who've said, like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord first. We're going to put him first in our life. And those of you who are raising young children, I encourage you just to note it and mark it down because there'll be a lot of things that will compete. There are good things. It's amazing to me what takes place now on Sundays, uh, the uh, traveling baseball teams and gymnastics and all these things that would never be on Sundays are now on Sundays. You, you wonder, any idea why that might be? Because <laughs> we're in a great spiritual battle. And he would love for your children to grow up and to think that somehow fellowshipping and worshiping the Lord is something, you know, if you have time for it, that's great if you can do it, but it's not necessarily at the top of the pile of our values and our activities. And your children learn really quickly what's important to you. And, and men, we will be the leaders of our home. We will either lead our children closer to the Lord or away from him. There's no middle ground in it. There's no fence that you can sit on. You will go one way or you will go the other. There's no in between. You'll either love the Lord or you might believe in him but he's really not precious to us. He's not that treasure that you seek. He's not your all and your all. He's some of it, but not all of it. And I just applaud you men that you are here today. I, uh, Joel and I share uh, a number of things in common. And one of the things that we have in common is that we both grew up in a home that loved the Lord. And not all of our stories in this room are alike. Some of you have some deep father wounds and I'm sorry that you bear some of those things. Uh, for, for me, uh, I grew up in a home, though, where my mom and dad loved the Lord. In fact, uh, on the wedding night of my mom and dad, I learned this uh, later on in life, uh, my dad shared with me that the first act that my, he and his, um, my mother did together before they consummated their relationship is my dad opened up the Bible, read Deuteronomy chapter 6, and said, honey, this is what I want our home to be like. I share that with you in the event that there's some young men that are anticipating marriage that you might do the same thing. 
that you sit down and you make your night the Lord's night where he celebrates your union together. But together you make a commitment and you say, honey, this is what I want our home to look like. So that when we rise up during the day, we walk throughout the way, it's all about Jesus. So much so that when our children see our home and their neighbor's home, they say, Daddy, how come our home is so different? Why are we making these choices that are different than Billy's and Sammy's? And they, they get to do all a bunch of things. Why, how come we don't do it? Well, honey, it's because we love Jesus and he's transformed our lives and that's why we do that. Let, I encourage you men to be something similar. The fruit of it, the joy of it, I never one time in my life, one day, one hour, one minute, did I ever hear my father raise his voice to my mother. Not one time did he ever strike her. Not one time was he ever drunk, controlled by alcohol in any way. He was a businessman in this community. And as a young man, I watched my dad, who, who he would say that the Lord owns my business. He saw the businesses that he operated on, the, uh, the enterprises that we were involved in, as opportunities to be a blessing to others. He wanted to represent Christ in every sale that he made. He wanted to represent Christ to his employees. And I would encourage those of you that are in business at various levels that you would make Christ truly Lord of every aspect of your life, not just, not just here on Sunday, but Monday through Sunday, that Christ is Lord and he is your all in all. Wouldn't that be cool? We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you did not bring a Bible today, maybe as you look around and you see that somebody doesn't have a Bible and you and your wife both have them, maybe share yours, but let's all look at the Word today. I know there are lots of mobile devices, and that's fine if you're there. If you have a game that you want to play, please don't look, turn it on loud so we hear the noises. But, uh, and there's nothing wrong with having the Word on your phone. I do. But there is nothing like having the Bible in your hands. One of the things that will happen that you don't get with an iPhone or iPad is you don't see the other things. And uh, it's good to see as you look at the Word of God, you'll catch your eye on chapter 1, you'll catch your eye on chapter 3, and those, those are good things to do. And I also encourage you to write in your Bible. Uh, it really helps us when we do your funeral if you write in your Bible. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> I have, I've done a number of funerals, I know Gordon will attest to it, and you're there, and you say, can I see the Bible? <laughs> and it's like they just got it out of the bookstore. <laughs> and I have had this experience. Did you ever talk about the Lord? Did you ever talk about heaven? No, we never talked about it. Do you know the Lord? Well, yeah, I know that he trusted in Christ, I know that she trusted in Christ, but you never talked about the Lord, never talked about heaven? No, that, that's a hard funeral to do. <laughs> But boy, when, you, when, you're, when the word is all in there, um, whoever's going to do my funeral has a lot to work with. <laughs> and uh, you'll, you'll soon learn what really is special. And as the verses are underlined and written in it, you begin to catch an idea what was very meaningful. So I say that uh, the Bible is not to be a treasure that you never write in. You write in it, you take notes, you underline it, circle words that are repetitive that will help you in all of your, your studies. Well, we're in a four-part series. Pastor Rick started last week. There'll be two other series. We'll be in Ecclesiastes 6 next week. We have a special guest that will be speaking. And then Joel will be doing Ecclesiastes chapter 12, encouraging to make this a part of your study throughout the week. It is, when you look at Ecclesiastes, it is the most depressing book in the whole Bible. And chapter 2 is the most depressing chapter in the whole Bible. And Rick gave it to me to do. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've had the pleasure of being in chapter two now for a number of weeks. 
and I just keep digging in and digging. There is, it is a rich, rich chapter. And it is amazing how verses intertwine with other verses. And when I look at this, I can see what my life would be like if I didn't have Jesus. I would say the same thing that, that Solomon is saying here, who had so much and everything lost its flavor. His wives, you can't have relationships with over a thousand women at any beck and call and find any one of them very special. Can you imagine that? You can't have the kind of wealth he had and appreciate the few dollars that are in your pocket. It's just, it all becomes meaningless after a while. And the Lord used those things to test his heart. As we read this, I want to give you, uh, ask you just a few questions. This comes from a book called Idols of the Heart. And these are questions that I ask myself and I want you to ask yourself as well. They're pretty substantial. Listen to these questions. What do I long for so much that my heart clamors, give me this or else I'll die? What must I have for life to be meaningful or happy? What enables me to lie down at night and know that at my core, I'm really okay? If I answer that question with anything other than God himself, then that's what functions as a God for me. I know here this morning, there's this possibility that there are some of you that may be thinking, and I'm not being judgmental in the sense of trying to put you down. But if there's any of us here that are thinking, boy, if I could just win the lottery, my life would be so much better. I remember praying with a man, if I could just get this job, my life will be so much better. And within a year, he regretted ever having that job. If I could just have, if I could just be with that woman, my life would be so much better. If I could just be with that man, I could, I could be so much better. If I could just have a baby, my life would be so much better. That was Rachel's story when you read it in Genesis. Like, just, just, God, just give me a child. And I know that childlessness and infertility is a difficult thing to go through. We have friends who are really struggling in that area. But if there's things in your life that you think, if I, if there's, if I could just have that, my life would be so much better, then that's a God to you. The Lord really wants us to come to this place where we can say in a heart, Lord, you are my shepherd. I find my greatest contentment being at your feet. You lead me into pastures that are green. You take me through different valleys, and some of them are dark valleys, but I know you would never take me through this dark valley unless there was something better on the other side. And so, Lord, your rod and your staff remind me that you're near and you comfort me as we go through these difficult times. And I know that you'll prepare before me a, a table that would be even set before me in the presence of my enemies. You're the one who anoints my head with oil. And because of it, my cup overflows. Lord, I'm so glad that you're my shepherd. And as we read this, to me, it breaks my heart that Solomon, who had a dad like David, who wrote Psalm 23, did not embrace the Lord with all of his heart. Did not say to him, Lord, you are my shepherd. And the wisdom you have given to me, Lord, I want to seek you. I know that these things of the world are available to me, but Lord, what I really want is I want you. What a difference Solomon's life would be had he made those choices. I find Solomon's story very sad. He starts out very good. He becomes a king very young. We'll get into that a little bit later. He does not live a long life. He could have. By God's grace, he might have even been alive today. I know that sounds extraordinary, but God promised him a long life. He would set his heart to be fully devoted to him, and he chose not to. I think part of it, because his life became so meaningless, he was looking for the wrong things. Last year, there was an article written in Huffington Post about 10 reasons why you should follow your heart. 
Reason number one, this is by a psychologist of all people. This is true. Reason number one, if you follow your heart, you'll have no regrets. You're going to read a chapter right here of a man who followed his heart. You tell me when we get to the end. Do you think Solomon had any regrets? The quickest way to deep regrets and shame and wish you could do your life over is if you do what Solomon does right here in verse 1. He sets in his heart, in his mind, I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to give, I'm going to feed my heart every of its desires. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to seek if there's any meaning in it. And it's a tragic life. Anyone who does any counseling, and you maybe have been there, you have made choices where you have followed your heart and got against what you know is the right thing to do, you live a life of great regret. And the Lord, by his grace, is able to, to forgive, and he's able to cleanse, and he's able to make things new, but we bear scars that might live with us the rest of our life because of the choices that we made where we knew what God wanted us to do, and we chose to go a different direction. As we read chapter 2 here together, I want you to be thinking about these things, what it really means to follow your heart, what it really means to feed the desires of your heart. This chapter is profitable to us. It's been preserved for the ages because the Lord wants us to learn right here from Solomon's life. He allowed Solomon to go down this path. The Lord does allow us to go either towards him or away from him. He doesn't make us love him. And in all of his testing, he was waiting for Solomon to cry out and to say, Lord, I need you. Lead me, direct me. And he'll answer that prayer if any of us would pray that even here today. So are you with me in chapter two? I'm gonna read it through. Paul told Timothy not to neglect the reading of the word. It's good to hear God's word. So as we go through this, it'll take a few minutes. Uh, I'm gonna point out just a few key words and then we're gonna break it apart. So follow along with me as I read. I'm reading out of the New International Version. Your version might be a little bit different, but I'm sure, I know it's accurate. So here we go. Solomon is speaking. He's writing in his journal, his diary, and this is what he says about his life. I thought, I gave consideration in my heart. Come now, I'm gonna test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. The word meaningless means to be futile, worthless, to be filled with false hopes. So let's just think about that. False hopes, it's like fool's gold. It glistens, it looks pretty but it is phony, it is fake. Laughter, he said, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Another word for folly is embracing foolishness. That just, that, that grabs me. Why would a man who is so smart choose to go down that path that you know that anyone, if we would look at it, would just say, that's a stupid way to go. But he chooses to enter into foolish behavior, foolish living. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. That I can't figure out how that could be, but that's what he says. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And Rick pointed out so well, the key phrase in there is under heaven. When you make the things of this earth something to pursue under heaven, you're gonna, you'll write this chapter yourself. It's not what's under heaven that gives us meaning in life. It's what's above into heaven. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that we're to set our mind and our hearts on things above where Christ is seated. That's what really counts. Verse 4. And so, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. 
magnificent houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of, of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had other slaves who were born in my house. So as these slaves would have relationships and children would be born, they belonged. They, they forever were slaves to Solomon. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone, uh, um, than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself. We'll talk about what that was. And the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. That's cool. I mean, so um, this will date me, but uh, Beach Boys was one of my favorite groups growing up. He owned them. <laughs> he could buy them. <laughs> he could say, I want you. How much would it cost for you to, so, to play, stay in my house? I'll give you whatever you need, and then you can play for me whenever I want you to play. He, so think about the most popular singers, Britney Spears, whoever they are you're following, and he buys them, puts them in a home, feeds them so they can play whenever he decides he wants to listen to, listen to them. He didn't have iPods in those days, so you had to have the singers actually there under your employ. That's something. And he also had a harem as well. He had 700 wives that were born out of royalty and 300 women that existed just for his pleasure. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me and all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. He'll say here a little bit later that he realizes that it was God who gave him that wisdom. In fact, as you read 1 Kings 4 and uh, uh, 2 Chronicles of, uh, 9, it talks about how God is the, gave it, kept, kept putting it into his heart in spite of his behavior. Verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Imagine that. You having the resources and the ability to do anything that your heart desired. Absolutely no restraints. He says, I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all of my labor. And yet when I looked and I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was chasing the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Can you imagine chasing the wind? What would you do if you caught it? <laughs> Tried chasing bubbles? That's an example of chasing the wind blow these bubbles, your kids go after it, and they grab it, and what happens to it? It pops. And they go after another bubble, and they grab it, and it pops. That's what he's talking about here. All the things, all his work projects, all of his pleasures were like little bubbles that he would grab, and they would pop. And said, this is ridiculous. It is futile. Verse 12, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness, and folly, or foolishness. What more can the king's successor do that was already been done? He had a son named Rehoboam that we'll read about in a little bit. Rehoboam became king at 40 years old. He was older than his father when he became king. And already Solomon was looking at his son. He saw foolishness in the heart of his son. And he dreaded the thought that I have all of this stuff. I've done everything. What else is there for my son to do? And, and will he even appreciate what it is that I have and can you imagine growing up in a household that has absolutely everything, anything you could ever want, you had, your dad had, and now it becomes yours. No appreciation at all. In fact, within five years, Shishak from, uh, from Egypt comes up and ransacks the temple, and everything that Solomon was storing away was gone just like that within just a few years. Isn't that sad? 
And so he says, what more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize, pay attention to this, I came to realize that the same fate, which is death, overtakes them both. And then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool, which is death, will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Let the fool, the wise man too, must die. When you go to a seminary, you walk amongst the stones. Unless you know the names, you do not know their history. Amongst there in any cemetery lies people who were foolish and people who were wise, people who are poor and people who are rich. And all that marks their life is this stone. For those of you that have children, and I would say even teenagers, I did this with my own children. I know it may sound morbid, but it's one of the best things that you can do is to go take and visit a cemetery where your family is buried. For my family, it's a Wood Colony Cemetery off of Dakota Avenue. And we would take times, and there are headstones of people that I know. A good friend of mine, Larry Bowman, who was an outstanding basketball player in Modesto High School in the late 60s and early 70s, contracted bone cancer when he was just 19 years old. He was looking forward to being married. He had a very precious young lady that he was looking forward to spending the life with, and the Lord called Larry home. He's there. In the same cemetery is a picture of a little girl who died with her grandpa in a car accident. You'll find as you look at those headstones, this is what our children need to see. Is honey, one of these days... Daddy's going to be buried here or you'll be buried here. One of us will bury the other. It's a process of life. And what's most important is not what you do here, but what you're doing up here. Are you ready to meet Jesus and to live your life? It is sobering for a teenager who thinks that they're immortal to see a headstone. And here's one of their friends, maybe. Or here's another younger, someone younger than they whose life was cut short. It's good to know that our life has a limited span. God knows our days. It's wise for them to go to a funeral and to see what death and life really is all about. It helps them to live a sober life rather than a foolish life who thinks that today is all that matters because there may be very well a tomorrow and we ought to be living with our eyes looking to the future of ultimately seeing Jesus. And so look at what happens in verse 17. And so Solomon says, so I hated life. He says, I saw life as an enemy because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. He says, doggone it, I gotta leave it to my foolish son, Rehoboam. He's not gonna at all appreciate it. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a foolish man. His, he already had a sense what Rehoboam was gonna be. Yet he will have control over all the work of my life, which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all of my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? In all his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. This is a joy-filled chapter, isn't it? <laughs> 24. 
A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Isn't that key? That ought to be underlined in your Bible. Because without the Lord, how will you ever find enjoyment? Because he's the giver of all things. Look at verse 26. So to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the top, to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let me pray and then we'll break this apart. Father, I thank you for the privilege here today of opening your word and reading your word. The word alone, Lord, we could just wrap it up and go home here. Because this is serious stuff. It's easy to understand. It doesn't require a theological degree to understand the truth of this passage of Scripture. And Lord, what I am so happy for today is not only that my sins are forgiven, but like a little boy's sack lunch, I present myself to you. And what you are able to do is greater than any of us could ever imagine because of your unlimited power that works within us to the glory of Jesus Christ and the church forever and ever and ever. And that is our desire, Lord, as we present ourselves before you as a living sacrifice that, Lord, you'd be pleased to receive us and use us and work through us and draw us nearer to you as well as be a blessing to others that we will see in the days and weeks to come. So, Lord, I pray that you, your word here will, will bear great fruit in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Again, uh, you know, my illustrations are dating, uh, and, and, and yet these are things that I have lived with for a long time. In 1968, there was a song that was written and was recorded by Peggy Lee and became a hit song in 1969. You remember the song, That's All There Is? The song, Peggy didn't write it, but she identified with a number of different verses that are within it, but the person who did write it is essentially their life. If you go and you look at the words, it's a sad song. It's a very sad song. And as she tells this song, she describes herself as a little girl who one time her daddy had to rescue them because the house was burning. And as they were standing out watching this house burn down, she says, is that all there is? Is that all there is as I watch this house burn? If that's all there is, then let's break out the booze. Let's have a ball. Let's keep dancing if that's all there is. She talks about her marriage relationship. She meets this young man and everything's special. Everything's good. His words are sweet. And then he leaves her and she says, is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friends? Is that it? Is that what this is all about? Then let's just break out the booze, let's have a ball, if that's all there is. The last verse is even sadder. Because in the, in the last verse, someone says to her, well then why don't you just end it all? And she says, oh no, oh no. Uh, uh, not, no, I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad that as she looked forward to the, the passage where she moves out of this world into eternity, she was afraid that it was going to be terribly disappointing to her. Folks, I'm, I'm telling you here today, if you know Jesus Christ, there is no way that any of us will look at the Lord and see him in all of his glory, to be embraced by him and to see the mansions that he's prepared for us. And we will turn and say to him, really? That's it? That's it? <laughs> That's what all my sacrifice is all about? Folks, the Lord in, in his greatness and his sovereignty who makes everything brand new, we will be astounded. I love the passage that in Ephesians that says, now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or imagine 
according to his great power that works within us, to the glory of Jesus Christ and the church forever and ever. I love the passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has in store for those who love him. Folks, we are gonna be blown away. There is no way, and poor Peggy Lee in this song was fearful that she was gonna be disappointed, and so she just continues to live out a meaningless life, dreading the day that that will come. Hugh Hefner, in his latter years of life, was asked by a reporter as to what he found to be the meaning of life. Here's what he said. Listen to this. He said, I urge one and all to live this life as if there is no reward in the afterlife and to do it in a moral way that makes it better for you and those around you and that leaves this world a little better place than when you found it. Hefner, did you do that? <laughs> he opened Pandora's box. And every lady here has been impacted by what he did back in the 50s. Every lady here struggles with how they look at themselves when they see the mirror because of Hugh Hefner. Your dating relationships were impacted by young men who were influenced by Hugh Hefner, who valued women only as objects of pleasure. Tragically, young ladies, beautiful young ladies, sold themselves for a dollar to achieve fame and fortune and found themselves to be in a prison where many of them wanted to kill themselves. And every once in a while, Hugh would pull them out of their little rooms. He would dress them up in clothes that were very uncomfortable and embarrassing. They lost dignity and humility and he'd prayed them as though he were some sort of a king and his guests would pawn on them. He lived his life as though there was no reward in the afterlife and lived an empty life. And in his later years of life, he said, I looked for love in all the wrong places. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? He had the appearance of having everything and he had nothing. C.T. Studd is a famous missionary. If you read um, anything about uh, Christian history, he lived in the latter part of the 1800s, early 1900s, born out of a very wealthy family. He had it all. He had tremendous education. He was an extraordinary athlete, and he had a promising career, not only in politics, but also in athletics, where he could have found fame and fortune. And at a very young age, in his 20s, he made a different decision than what Solomon did. And he said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying and how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Jim Elliott, when he was 22 years old at Wheaton College, said this, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. When Jesus came, on earth. Not only did he come to save us from the terrible day of judgment, but he came to give us life and to give us life abundantly. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume. Don't, don't waste your life on things that are going to burn up. But instead, make it your aim to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not consume and thieves do not break and, and steal. For where your treasure is at, that's where your heart's going to be. I want your heart to be with me. I'm looking forward to seeing you face to face. I'm looking forward to rewarding you. I'm, I'm looking forward to saying at the very end of the race, let me show you what it is that your efforts and your sacrifices have done. So let's look at Solomon's plight. If you have your study sheets, we're gonna walk through this fairly quickly here today. 
The study sheet is really meant not only to help you to follow along with the things that are being said here this morning, but the verses are meant, really meant for you and your family to go home and to study and to look at it. Be familiar with these passages of Scripture. It will stir your heart. It, it is, there is great things in here for your kids to begin to learn. Great exercises. So let's just go through this very, very briefly. Solomon's plight. It's good to understand that he was young when he became king. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I, was a, I am a child. I'm only a little child. and do not know how to carry out my duties. Some think that Solomon was in his late teens or early 20s when he became king, which meant that his father, David, had a sexual relationship with Bathsheba in his late 40s, and Solomon was born in his 50s. David lived, uh, reigned for 40 years. And so there was a short period of time there where, where Solomon was growing up, knowing his daddy later in life. And when, he, uh, when David dies, it was not thought that Solomon would be, become king because he was so young. There were other uh, uh, stepbrothers that he had that were much older that in a human way would think that one of those older ones would become, this, become the king. But if you read it, it's an interesting passage how he became king. But I want you to know, he's only 20 years old when he becomes king. Young men that are here today, I want you to think about what it means that if you were to be in charge of a great country at such a young age, he reigned for 40 years. That's really clear in 1 Kings eleven forty two. Now what's the sad about Solomon is that he started out well and finished poorly. The first seven years he's engaged in building the temple and on two occasions the Lord meets with him right out of the gate shortly after that he becomes king. The Lord shows up on behalf of David whom he loved. And he says, Solomon, I love your dad and I'm showing up here tonight because how can I bless you? And Solomon says, look, what I really want is wisdom because I feel like a child and I want wisdom to be able to discern what is just and what is right. And that's all that he asked for. And God was so impressed with his humility and his desire for wisdom. He said, Solomon, I'm going to give you wisdom. You're going to be the wisest man on earth. And not only in addition to that, I'm also going to make you the wealthiest man on earth. And when the things you didn't ask for, I'm going to give to you. And, right, and, and it's just amazing to see his transforming work. Seven years later, after he builds a temple, God visits him again and reaffirms that. And then also says, Solomon, if you follow me, I'm going to give you a long life a very long life. He didn't say exactly how long it would be, but we know of a man that in, the, in the Genesis who lived to be almost a thousand years old. I mean, who knows how long Solomon could have lived. He could have lived, he could have outlived it. He could have been the oldest man that ever lived on earth. He could have lived to be 2,000 years old. He could still be alive today if God would have enabled him, if only he had set his heart to follow the Lord. We don't know. Sadly, though, he dies of natural causes when he's around 60 in his late 50s or 60. I've outlived Solomon. Many of you have outlived Solomon. He lived a short life. But during that life, God gave him great wisdom and understanding. Wisdom discern difficult situations. And you can read about that when you read 1 Kings, how it was first was tested. I won't go into it today. But kings from all over the place, all over the world, came to look at Solomon and to, and to find out answers to questions that they had. And he always had a God-given answer to the issues that they would bring. Uh, but he also had understanding in all the sciences. So that if there was anything to know about reptiles and bugs and beetles and you name it, he knew about it. He knew everything. I, 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 it saddens me to think how those things that he wrote about and studied were lost forever because of wars and whatnot. We're all burned up. Folks don't ever think that we know more than what they knew back then. 
He would have been an incredible, he would have put any PhD guy in any of the fields to shame with what he knew. He had inexhaustible riches. Folks, we can't begin to fathom what Solomon had. He had over 100, he had over 153,000 aliens. If you were a Jew in those days, you were not slave labor. It says they were fruitful. There was no infertility during those 40 years. The food production was incredible. They had over 12,000 horses. He had 19 tons of flour every day that was ground and made into bread. 19 tons to feed the people, his wives and children and all the people in his government. 19, 000, uh, 19 tons of flour. He had over 10,000 pounds of beef served up every day, not to mention the sheep and the goats and deer and the gazelles. Folks, there were no skinny people in Israel in those days. A lot of us were living in the wrong time. <laughs> there was no lack of food. For 40 years, there was no lack of food. There was no famine. Record crops every year. Had to be. When you would read the list of all that he had, it was a record crop. Get this about gold. 60, 666 talents of gold. Now, here's, here's a, for those of you who have homeschooled children, have your kids look up 1 Kings chapter 4 and have them do the math. It's a lot of fun if you like numbers. 66 talents, a talent is 75 pounds. If you take 66, uh, 666 talents, multiply it by 75 pounds, and divide it by 2,000, you know how many tons you get? A thousand tons of gold a day. You know how big a thousand tons of gold is? If you could melt it all down and put it in a big old cube, you know how big of a cube you would get? You can do the math. (laughs) The cube would be 25 cubed, 25 feet long, 25 foot wide, 25 foot tall. Imagine a block of gold that would stretch from that chair to right about here, almost all the way back, as high as the ceiling, solid gold. Every single day for 40 years. This last week, gold um, closed just under $1,300 an ounce. $41 trillion in 40 years. That's not a bad wage, is it? It said silver wasn't even counted. It was so common. Not only did he have an inexhaustible riches, but he had an extensive empire that stretched all the way from the Tigris-Euphrates River, which goes through Iraq, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way south along the um, Red Sea, which is where Yemen is at, and all the way north up to Turkey. All of that was his. And there were ships and wagons and camels and caravans that were bringing food and riches from all of those places day after day after day. He had worldwide respect. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put into his heart. That's what 1 Kings chapter 10, 24, 25 says. And then whatever his heart desired, he sought to fulfill. He could. He had no financial limitations. He was the king. He was above all things. He could do whatever he wanted to do. So here was his quest. This is what he sought out to do. This is what we see here in verse one and verse 10. He said, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasures to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Look at verse 11. Uh, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, I'm sorry, verse 10, I deny myself nothing from my eyes. 
uh, my eyes desire, to refuse my heart, no pleasure. So Solomon sought to fulfill his heart's desire. He wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven. And so he imagined a man, what, 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 what is the value of this life? And Rick did it so well last week, I can't begin to imitate him. If you, didn't, if you miss a message, listen to the message. But he describes, just think about your life where you get up in the morning, you have coffee, you get a bagel, put a little cream cheese on it, go brush your teeth, kiss your wife, get into the car, travel to the same road, clock in at eight o'clock or whatever you clock in, answer a few phone calls, go to an, uh, different, some different meetings, uh, fulfill some orders, have lunch at the same place that you had lunch at the cantina or whatever it is, go back and make some more phone calls, write up some more orders, get back into your car, go home, kiss your wife, have a little bit of food, watch some TV, yell at your kids, uh, put them to bed, watch a little bit more TV, go to bed, and you start the routine all over again. And Solomon wanted to see, is there anything else beyond that that might make life meaningful? And he began to explore all of those things. He wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven. So here's his conclusion. We can find his conclusion in verse 1, verse 11, verse 15, 17, 21, and 23. He says, it's all smoke and mirrors. That's what the word meaningless means. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be smoke and mirrors, meaningless. There's nothing that you can hang on to. All these things that appear to be very fulfilling. And th some of us have, have explored that. If I, uh, yeah, if I could just get this new gun, <laughs> if I could just get this new bass boat, if I could just get this new house, if I could just do this next one thing, if I could just get this job, it's smoke and mirrors, right? The things that you thought, the happiness that it would bring, it's pops, and then you're chasing something else. That new boat that you thought was so good, all of a sudden there's a newer one that even looks better than that, right? <laughs> that one gun that you thought that was really pretty hot and pretty cool, oh, there's a new one that just came out. I gotta have one of those too, right? And on and on it, on it goes. You know what's really sad is going into an antique store. It really is, I'm serious. I go into this and it saddens me and I see boxes of pictures of people's lives that nobody in their family wanted. I see collectibles that some mother, some woman had spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and put them into these beautiful glass cases and at the end of her death, nobody in her family wanted them and there they are in the antique store hoping that somebody else might want them a second time. Isn't that sad? I think about Ecclesiastes 2 when I go into an antique store and then he says, here's his conclusion, and not only is it smoke and mirrors, but the fate for all is the same. All of us will pass out of this life. You will either attend my funeral or I'll be attending yours. That's the fact of life, unless the Lord comes. Isn't that true? You will bury your children or your children will bury you. That's the fact of life. That's the way it is. God is writing a story for each of our lives the fate of the same is, of all is the same. It makes no difference how wealthy you are. The things that you might really want, your money cannot buy. I had the chance for a number of, for several years, it was a great experience. Uh, I worked for Aqua Pool and Spa. I designed backyards and built swimming pools for people. I met lots of different people, had great relationships, and had great opportunities to share Christ as the Lord would open up some doors. But I saw individuals who had great sums of money, lived very lavishly and was privileged to be able to build pools for them. But some of them would have given it all up if, they, if their wife could be healed of cancer. They would give it all up. One of them, their wife had um, MS really, really bad. And all the money couldn't buy 
and rejuvenate his wife that he dearly loved. The fate of all is exactly the same. Third thing is that it was his conclusion. You see this in verse 26. He says, to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. In fact, if you look, if you have your Bible, just look over to chapter 6, verse 1. Solomon says, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily upon men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor. He is this man. So that he lacks nothing, his heart's desire. That's Solomon. But God does not enable him to enjoy them. If you continue to read on to this, he says, a stillborn had a better life than me. He says later on in his life, I wish I had never been born. What benefit is it to have all of this and the one thing that I really want, which is happiness, which God gives, he has kept from me. God is the giver of all wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. And that's true even today. His downfall was two things. Number one is that he disregarded the Lord's commands. Now here, this is inexcusable. Every king, King Saul, King David, him, and all the other kings, this is what they were supposed to do, and I believe did do. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the instructions as given by Moses is that when you have a king, the first order of business after they have been crowned king is that they're, they're to take the book of the law, which is Deuteronomy, and rewrite it in their own hand so that the word of God could be with them day and night and they could study it day and night to learn what God would have them to be as men as well as rulers. And so that was his job. So right after his coronation, he would have been handed a scroll and it says, and by the high priest, okay, Solomon, here you're 20 years old, write down God's word. So as he wrote it, he would have learned very fast, very quickly, what it is that God expected of him. There was three things that God expected of the kings. One is that they would not amass fortunes. Because if they did, their heart would easily wander away from the Lord. Secondly, that they would not marry foreign women. Because if he did, that they, they would jeopardize their own relationship with the Lord by worshiping idols. The third thing is that they would not amass horses, particularly horses from Egypt. They did not want to uh, have Egypt that was known for its great wealth to have trade relationships and to enter into those kind of agreements. And guess what Solomon did? Knowing these things, this was not a secret to him. Right out of the gate, guess who is the first woman that he marries? Pharaoh's daughter. Right out of the gate, guess what he's doing? He's, he's buying and selling horses out of Egypt. Right out of the gate, he begins and through marriage relationships and trade relationships. He's marrying princesses from, from godless kings, bringing in over 700 wives, daughters of, of godless kings, became a part of his harem. And he says, and his heart fell in love with them. And then he had 300 additional women that were there for his own personal pleasure. And so here's Solomon. He says, I know what God's word says, but it really doesn't apply to me. I know what he says, but we really need to foster trade arrangements. And so, yeah, what's, what's wrong with making this agreement between kings and, and they'll be my wife? But, you know, it's, it's really just, it's for, the, it's for the country's good. And we have individuals doing the very same thing today. I know she's not a Christian, but maybe she'll get saved in our relationship. I mean, he's such, uh, you know, he's such a good man. He's such a kind man. I know he doesn't love the Lord, but really, is it that important? 
And we begin making compromises in life. As we get down the road, we recognize that now we're worlds apart. We can go through verse after verse after verse, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Well, maybe, but not to my enemies. I mean, we can go through this where we begin making compromises in our life and begin drifting away from where the Lord wants us to be. He beckons us to follow him. And secondly, his heart, as a result of these decisions, these compromises, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. I'm here to share with you today that Jesus gives meaning to a meaningless life. He says, I've come, to have, I've come that you may have life, you may have it to its fullest. He's the treasure in the field. He transforms our lives and our meager labor into works that never perish. Think about that for a moment. That he can take my life and my little things and giving it to him, he suddenly transforms my home into a place of blessing for others because it's his home, not my home. My car can be an instrument of grace to others because it's not my car, it's his car. My job, it's his job, not my job. He's put me here in my neighborhood. All of a sudden, my life begins to change when I begin to see things from Christ's perspective, recognizing that he's the captain of my ship. He's leading me into these relationships. He has a plan for my life, a plan that is to be a blessing to others. And if I follow him, who knows what the Lord is going to be able to do in my life. He's the one that gives meaning to my, to my life. So here's three unchangeable truths as we wrap this up. And as to those of you who are parents, please teach your children these essential truths. Number one, there's not a one of us that's here by accidents. You and I have been wonderfully made by the Lord. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news to know that, that he really knitted you together? That no matter, and maybe your birth, your mom and dad have told you that your birth was unplanned. Maybe by them, but not by God. <laughs> he knew you before the foundations of the world. He knew every one of us. He put the DNA code together in my life. He's the one that gave me blue eyes. He's gave, he gave me uh, the, uh, the, even the inclination to be right-handed. All of this is him. He orchestrated my mom and dad to come together. He had plans for me as he has for my children. All of us are wonderfully, none of us are junk. You, you, you know that the, the number one cause of death among teenagers today is suicide? It's because they feel like junk. They feel like their life has no worth and no value. They need Jesus. They do. They need to know that God has wonderfully has made them and has a plan for their life and, and that we are purposefully made. We're not just taking up space. He has a great kingdom plan of which every one of us is a part of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how, how we are unique, like the, all of our fingers and toes and, and every part of us is essential. Every one of us has a plan, has a purpose, and he knits us together just as he's desired. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says. That's good news. I love Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. It says, I know the plans that I have for you, not for calamity, but for a future and a hope. That's good news. Lastly, an essential truth is that eternity awaits us all. This will pass away. What awaits us will not. And Gordon rumbled the other day, Pastor Gordon said it so well. And it's, it's terrible. Can you imagine being in hell, not just with the, the, the darkness and the torment, but the memory I could have had Jesus. All of eternity, I could have had Jesus. I could have avoided all this. I could have had Jesus. There will be a day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about there will be a day when all of our works will be examined. There's a foundation that we all have in Christ 
We all have opportunity to build upon this foundation. How are you building upon this foundation? If it's all me, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm doing this for my life, all about me, 1 Corinthians 3 says, I am building on this foundation, wood, hay, and stubble. And there'll be a day where it will be examined by fire. Wood, hay, and stubble goes up just like that. We, we had a house fire. I watched it burn. But what remains is the gold, silver, and precious stones. Fire doesn't take those out. And how are we building our lives? Second Corinthians chapter five says, one of these days, all of our works will be examined and we'll be rewarded for what we have done in this life. Jesus said to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not consume and thieves do not break. Are you laying up treasures in heaven? Because there is eternity that awaits us all. And so Jesus asked his disciples, and he said this, this is a great question for us even today. What benefit is it if you and I gain the whole world, but we lose our soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? Anything? What a shame. What a shame that a person would invest all of their life in the things that will perish and to lose the very thing that is unperishable. So here are my last questions for us all, questions I've even asked of myself. So am I chasing the wind? Is there a worry or fear that I need to give to the Lord? Are there any entanglements in my life that are hindering my adventure with the Lord? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer admonishes that we throw everything off that entangles us so that we can run the race that's set before us. You know what that sin is that entangles us? It's unbelief. Our, 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 we're not really all there. And we kind of think that, you know what? I, I know there's heaven here, but I got to do this over here too because I want this stuff too. What really hinders us is our unbelief, really fully believing that Christ is all in my all in all. He, he is the strength that I seek. And that when I see him face to face, it really will be worth it all. Paul said, this is what sustained him. A man who had been brutally beaten, who had been shipwrecked multiple times, who had rocks thrown on him to try to kill him, who had been beaten and robbed, and yet endured it all for Christ because he looked at all of those things and he said, they're just momentary light afflictions. <laughs> really, Paul? A momentary light affliction that's producing in me an incredible weight of glory. I cannot wait to see Jesus. Can you? So the things that you're struggling with today is a momentary light affliction. The things that our family is dealing with is a momentary light affliction. And I can't wait to see him face to face. And every sorrow and every tear here erases when we see him. That's the truth. Isn't that great truth? Isn't that transform our lives so that we're not writing an Ecclesiastes 2 in our life? That's what we need to encourage our children and our families, that we set our eyes upon the Lord and we live it for him because one of these days we're gonna see him and I can't wait to see him. And there we will be with him and he'll be with us forever and ever and ever and ever with no regrets. Isn't that great? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege and opportunity today to open up your word, to teach your word today. Lord, would you take your word, plant it deep into our life, would you use it to transform our lives so that even tomorrow as we meet others, Lord, who, who really think that there's value in the next sale, there's value in the next thing, there's value in, 
vain, all these vain pursuits, that they would see, and that Lord would not be ashamed of you, not only would they see Christ in us, but they hear about Christ through us. And so, Lord, use us, transform us. If there's any here today that are carrying heavy burdens, Father, would you give them release, freedom, and joy as they trust in you, living for you. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an opportunity to pray right over there. I'll be here to meet any who are brand new here today. Lord bless you. And uh, grab a good dad's root beer, folks. Enjoy today. Lord bless you.